Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. Good to have you all with us here today. Before we get to our message, we want to spend a few minutes catching up with a friend and ministry partner, Jean-Paul Dagajamana. JP is a country director for World Relief Kenya. You can welcome him. JP is one of the many remarkable people that we get to work with around the world. JP is originally from Rwanda and escaped the genocide there. Uh, now is, uh, went on to get an MBA in finance, did some work in the consulting world for a variety of years, but for the past dozen years or so has been working with World Relief and now as country director in Kenya. And uh, I got to know JP a few years ago on a vision trip there to Kenya, and uh, we took a Eight-hour cross-country Range Rover backcountry trip to nowhere. <laughs> Felt like nowhere, but we got to the wonderful Turkana people. But you get close to somebody nine hours in a Jeep. So uh, it's good to, good to have JP here with us. Uh, as you know, or may remember, back at Christmas time, we gave our Christmas Eve offering to provide solar-powered wells for the Turkana people in Kenya. So we were able to give actually $90,000 that people gave at Christmas time. So that was good Thank news. you. Thank you. So uh, JP is uh, just stopping by to say thanks and hi and tell us a little bit about how that money was put to use. So tell us what's happening there, JP. Thank you, Pastor Brian. Good morning. It's always a joy to be here. I feel like I'm home. <laughs> but I want to share with you gratitude from our people in Turkana. Turkana is up in the northern part of Kenya way up, and it's a remote, dry, dusty place. Actually, when you go there, people there ask you, how is Kenya? Because it's so remote and far. <laughs> so what we do there, we mobilize churches and we empower them to meet the physical, spiritual, and economic needs of the people. And we do it through what we call integral mission, where word and deeds go together. And we have helped them by putting water the centrality of what we do. So the whole process is we drill boreholes, and then they are powered by pumps, which are uh, given energy by the solars. And then it goes into tanks. And from those tanks, water is brought down to three points, one for human consumption, another for animal consumption, and another for irrigation-based agriculture. And when we do that, we, we provide material like solar panels and pumps. And the community brings sweat equity and work together with their hands. Now, when you do that, Unbelievable things happen. That area that is dry, because of your contribution, what we've managed to do with them, now it's turning green. They're able to harvest vegetables, and before this was none of their meal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. These are pastoralists who are used to eat goat meat and maize, and now they're putting the, the, the veggies, and it's improving life. Before we went there, the general acute malnutrition was way up. Now it's down in normal range. And we, we are starting to see them becoming hygienic, and women, they are getting cleaner. But there is something that happened that you have to look closer to see. It's discipleship. It's a change of heart. Because of having nothing, they are community that fight with their neighbors, cattle rusting, and, and because of the Bible, because of introducing the peace of priest to them, there is peace with God and peace with one another. They are not getting the physical water they are giving, the living water as well. Amen. So I can't thank you enough. 
JP, we're obviously very encouraged by that and so grateful Thank to you. be in partnership with World Relief that lets us uh, play a part in that story. Mm. Um, obviously, we are also troubled and saddened recently by the violence in Kenya, particularly that uh, against uh, Christian people and Christian students. Mm. Just tell us a little bit about the impact that's having on the church and how we can be praying for you folks. Thank you. We surely can do with your prayer. Kenya is a country that is having some security challenges due to a decision they took to fight a group of militia called Al-Shabaab that is originated from Somali. They are Muslim fundamentalists. They have bombarded churches, they have bombarded schools, they have bombarded bus stations. And today, many people in Kenya, they are afraid. Actually, if you go to your website, the U.S. Embassy has put a travel warning, and there is fear. My son, who is 12 years once on a dinner meeting, he said, Dad, should I now start learning Muslim things so that I don't get killed when I attack my school? Mm -hmm. Because when they come, they ask you, what is the name of the mother of Muhammad or what the capital city of the pilgrim? If you don't know, that's enough. You die. It's faith-based. So pray for us that fear will not give in. But also pray for uh, those people because they are attacking the heart of our Christian faith. Jesus asked us to love, even love those who persecute us. But to tell you the truth, loving a Somali in Nairobi today is difficult. We're seeing them as people who are wanting to kill us, so they are stigmatized, they are persecuted, they are victimized, and we don't want the church to be. We want the church to be different, to love them, to welcome them, and it's difficult. We need your prayer. But finally, when these things happen, people lose life. A lot of people die. In this last attack, 147 people were killed, hundreds of people were injured, and there is a lot of trauma and grief. And we want the church to raise, to stand with those people, to pray with them. So any post-trauma support, counseling, and uh, we thank you for your contribution. Okay. You've okay. been thank a you. great thank support you. and partner. We certainly will be thank praying you. with you. In just a moment, we'll do that. I do want to let you know that thanks to your generosity throughout the year, we have some funds to share with World Relief, with Kenya. So we'll be able to give $10,000 to help World Relief as they help respond to these needs. And then another $10,000 we're able to give to IFES, the student ministry organization there in Kenya, as they work in particular with students and young people and some of this post-trauma kind of recovery. So thank you for your generosity that enables us to do that. Thank you. I'm going to suggest that we stand together. Let's stand across our campuses as together we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Kenya and in many other troubled places around the world. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled and grateful today to be standing here not only with our brother JP, but with all our brothers and sisters around the world today, worshiping you, serving you, being the hands and feet of Jesus in whatever part of the world they find themselves in. Thank you for reminding us today that we are part of that great worldwide body. Thank you that by your great grace and sovereignty, you enable us to play a part in what you're doing in the world and have played a part in bringing vitality to the region of Turkana, good nutrition, stronger family life, vibrant churches, just a sense of the flourishing that you intended for human beings. Thank you for using our humble gifts to help make that possible. Thank you for World Relief and their skilled, persevering, and gracious efforts there. Continue to bless them. Lord, we do pray for the nation and for the church throughout Kenya as they respond to this recent violence. We do pray you'd grant courage to your followers and peace that they will know that they have all they need from you to stand up in the face of such threats. We pray that you might shed love abroad in their hearts, not only for one another, 
but for their persecutors and for the Somali people who are in their midst. And Lord, we pray that you might give them great grace and strength as they minister to a nation that is desperately in need of hope and courage and faith. So we entrust them to your care today. We thank you for a provision for our needs and our ability to be part of your work around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, JP. Well, about a month or so ago, I found myself in a room with some very smart people talking about some very big ideas. Somehow I got invited to something called the Cambridge Round Table. It's held on the, at, the, at the Harvard Faculty Club. I nearly said Harvard. At the, it's at the Harvard Faculty Club. And it brings together leading thinkers and faculty members from a variety of the universities here in the area. And they come together periodically to hear a lecture and interact with some big idea. Uh, the group brings together about half the crowd are Christ-following people, and about half the crowd are seekers, skeptics, doubters, and somewhere in between. Uh, just about everybody in the room has a PhD in some, something or other, including some of the Grace Chapel folks who were there and whose coattails I was riding into this event. <laughs> well, the guest speaker that evening was Dr. Steven Pinker, a well-known, highly regarded uh, Harvard professor. He's distinguished himself in a variety of fields, linguistics, psychology, and cognitive science. And his subject on that evening was moral progress. Is it possible, and if so, what causes it? Now, his basic premise was that humankind has made great moral progress throughout the thousands of years of our history. The world today is a safer, healthier more peaceful, more productive place than it has ever been before. Fewer people are living in poverty today. Fewer people are dying in wars today. More people can read and write. More people have access to food and water. We've eradicated many life-threatening diseases, and the world is more productive than it has ever been. So his answer to the question, is moral progress possible, would be an emphatic yes. As to the cause of moral progress, he would just as emphatically say that religion and faith have nothing to do with it. The cause of moral progress, he would argue, is reason. Intelligent thought. Scientific advance. Thoughtful deliberation. Pinker would argue that faith and religion not only don't contribute to human flourishing, they actually get in the way. And the sooner we could get rid of them, the better. We can be good without God. Now, Dr. Pinker is just one of many folks in our culture today who are advocating for an end to faith and religion. They are arguing that religious faith is not only uh, un unnecessary in our modern enlightened world, it's unreasonable and, and it is unhelpful. Now, Dr. Pinker is a very persuasive speaker. He had a very engaging presentation. He told a pretty good story. So as I was listening to all this, I was getting kind of worked up on the inside. What am I going to, what, what would I say? What am I going to say to these bright people when we have conversation around the table afterwards? What would I say to Dr. Pinker if I were to get a chance? Is Christian faith reasonable? 
is Christianity good for human beings and for human flourishing? Well, these are the questions we're going after these next few weeks here at Grace. Last week on Easter Sunday, we kicked off our unbelievable teaching series. We looked at Thomas, a character we meet at the, in, at the resurrection. And we found that Thomas's doubt actually led him to a place of faith in Christ. And so we learned that doubt is not the enemy of faith, it's the companion to faith. It prompts us to ask hard questions, to think carefully about the evidence, and to arrive at our own reasonable conclusions. And we learned that when both empirical evidence and personal experience come together, when both reason and experience come together, the unbelievable can actually become believable. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at evidence for the Christian faith. Today we'll talk about scientific evidence. Next week we'll talk about historical evidence. And in two weeks we'll talk about experien experiential evidence for Christianity. As I said last week, if you're really interested in these questions, I'd encourage you to, in addition to the Sunday services, take advantage of the Alpha course. This is just getting started. Thursday nights here in Lexington, Monday nights in Wilmington. It's not too late to check that out. I began with my uh, Harvard Faculty Club story and setting because it's a perfect setup for the story we're going to look at this morning and for the question we're trying to answer. Can a reasonable educated, enlightened, modern person really embrace the Christian faith? Dr. Pinker and many of his colleagues would say emphatically no. Another very smart person, the Apostle Paul, would give a different answer. Let's look what happened to Paul and what he had to say on a visit to the city of Athens recorded for us in the book of Acts chapter 17. Now, instead of just reading the passage to you, I'd like you to kind of hear the passage as the story unfolded. We'll take it in two sections. So it begins, Acts 17 and verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he began reasoning with them in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks and in the marketplace with whoever happened to be there a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul had been preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, and they said to him, we want to hear more about this teaching you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Now, they were saying this because all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent all their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked about your city and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And we'll get to Paul's proclamation in just a moment. Now the city of Athens was the intellectual capital of the ancient world, home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. 
smart people from all over the Greco-Roman Empire came to, to Athens to study, to debate, to showcase their artistic talent and their literary skill. And with its, uh, with its uh, many landmarks and its lecture halls, it, it, was, uh, it was a monument. The city of Athens was a monument to, to human reason and to political freedom. Sound like a city you know? If Athens was the Boston of the ancient world, then the Areopagus was the campus of Harvard University, a place where really smart people come to talk about really important things. And that's where the Apostle Paul found himself on his visit. And while he was there, he encountered these two groups of people representing two philosophies, two schools of thought. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Here were two groups with two different views of the world. The Epicureans believed that, that God was distant and uninvolved in human affairs. There was no purpose to human history or the universe. There's no judgment. There's no afterlife. The, the point of life for the Epicureans was to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Now, the Stoics had a very different worldview. To them, God was not a person at all, but a force to be reckoned with in the world. It was, it was the power of fate that determined people's destinies. And so life for the Stoics was about, living, about doing your duty, embracing your destiny without complaining, embracing even pain and hardship in your own strength. Two very different worldviews, Epicureanism and Stoicism. Well, if Paul had been in the room at the Harvard Faculty Club the other night, he would have heard a different worldview, a worldview that uh, we would describe as atheism, in particular, the new atheism. Steven Pinker was advocating what's become a very popular point of view. The new atheism has been championed by people like Richard Dawkins and uh, Sam Harris and the late Christopher Hitchens. Now, the new atheism is a lot like the old atheism, only angrier. <laughs> New atheists, by their own admission, are not content simply to deny the existence of God. They want to eradicate the notion of God. As far as they are concerned, religion and faith are, are evil. And the sooner we can rid them from human experience and society, the better off we will all be. Now, atheism is just a more strident form of a worldview that we call naturalism. And naturalism is the worldview accepted by a, the majority of secular scientists in the world, and it's a worldview that's affecting the way people live today. Naturalism proposes that there is no God. There's no supreme being. There's no spiritual force at work in the world today. Matter is all that exists. The universe is a closed system. There are no miracles or spirits or mysteries that can't be explained by chemistry, physics, and the laws of probability. Human beings are complex physical uh, and chemical machines. There's no life after death. There's no overarching purpose to human history. Ethics are a matter of choice and expediency. There's no higher external standard. Now, that is admittedly a very generalized and simplified view of naturalism. There are varieties to it. Now, I'll admit as well, it sounds pretty grim the way I have just laid it out. But for people like Dr. Pinker and Dawkins and Hitchens and others, 
it is actually a very liberating and empowering way to live. Because they would argue if there's no God, then it's up to us. It means that we are the ones to find and create meaning, joy, love, flourishing in human experience and in human society. And the best way to do that, they would say, is by reason. And the sooner we can get rid of faith and religion, the better. Now, I don't know how you're responding internally to this worldview I've just presented, but the Scripture tells us that when Paul listened to the Epicureans and the Stoics, he spazzed out. Now, it's not the word you'll find in the Bible there, but turns out the, the, the Greek word that's used there means and kind of sounds like spazzed out. Verse 16 says, He was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. In other words, his mind was racing, his heart was pounding, his, uh, his, perhaps his face was getting red. He, he had to say something. He had to speak up. But what would he say and how would he say it? I want you to notice something about Paul's approach. Notice that he doesn't attack or ridicule the Athenians for their way of thinking. If anything, he compliments them. People of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. Now, that probably wouldn't be received as a compliment on the university campus today. But in the ancient world, it was Paul's way of saying, I can see you are a thoughtful and serious-minded people. And then we're told that he reasoned with them in the synagogue, in the religious space, but also in the marketplace, in the secular space, in the academy. And that word reasoning suggests deliberating with words, a kind of give and take, a Socratic dialogue, uh, lecture and discussion, that sort of approach. Very much like what happens at the Cambridge Roundtable when seekers and believers come together to debate important ideas. So Paul encounters these two worldviews. He acknowledges them as legitimate attempts to make sense out of the world. And then he offers them an alternative explanation. He says... What you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. In other words, he offers them what I like to call a better story. So he lays out that story in the next few verses, and it goes something like this. People of Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he created all the nations and spread them out across the earth, determining the times and places in which they should live. And he did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Because he is not far from any one of us. For it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. As your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Well, since we are His offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now He's commanding people everywhere to turn to Him. He has set a time 
when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, even Jesus. And now he has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. Now, Paul probably said more than that, but that's the distilled version that uh, Luke gives us of Paul's message there. I want you to notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't quote Scripture to this pagan audience. He doesn't recite Genesis 1 or 2 because they don't believe the Scriptures. It would not have meant anything to them. Instead, he quotes some of their own poets, their culture creators, and then he argues from evidence. He says, look at the world around you and look at human experience. And he offers them an alternative explanation for all those things, a better story. You might think of it as the old turtle on a fence post problem. Imagine that you're walking across some farmland, one field to another, and you're ducking under barbed wire fences as you go. As you duck under one of those fences, you notice that sitting on top of one of those fence posts is a turtle. I mean, there he is, three, four feet off the ground, legs kicking in midair, its underbelly sitting squarely on top of that post. Now you look at his stubby little legs, the top-heavy shell. You look at that smooth, slender, vertical post, and you say to yourself, I wonder how he got there. <laughs> because a turtle on a fence post demands an explanation. And so does the universe. Demands an explanation. And that's what a worldview is. An explanation of all that we see. So atheism, naturalism, is one of those worldviews. There is no God, matter is all that exists, there's no afterlife, that sort of thing. In this lecture here to the people at the Areopagus, Paul offers an alternative explanation, another worldview that we'll call theism or Christian theism in particular. Now, no worldview is bulletproof. We're talking about things that can't be seen or proven. But Paul goes on to argue that the Christian worldview offers a more reasonable explanation for everything that is than any other worldview. Let me show you what I mean. Let's consider a few of the big questions that every worldview has to answer, that every person has to deal with, no matter how smart you are or not. We all have to face these questions. And let's see how Paul answers them. The first is the question of existence. Why is there something rather than nothing? Don't you sometimes turn to the person sitting next to you when you're sitting at a red light and say, dude, why is there something rather than nothing? <laughs> I mean, we ask these questions all the time, right? Some people do. The most obvious observation we can make about the world is, is that something exists. Why? How? Well, we really only have three options. One, it always existed. Two, it caused or created itself. Three, it was caused or created by something else. Those are the only three options. So did the universe always exist? Well, there's no scientific evidence to support that. There was a time science believed that. The steady state theory was widely accepted. But it is no longer. Science widely agrees the universe had a beginning. 
so it did not always exist. So if it didn't always exist, well, maybe it caused or created itself. There's a couple problems with that. First, there's no actual evidence for anything that has created itself. The second problem is one of logic. In order for a thing to create, it first has to exist. So a thing would have to exist in order to bring itself into existence. If you begin to get a headache, you fall back on the words of the famous philosopher who said, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Okay? <laughs> I realize I'm being very simplistic, but the, this point of view that the universe created itself seems scientifically and logically untenable. Now, the great Stephen Hawking, the brilliant Stephen Hawking, has proposed gravity as the reason, the cause that brought the universe into existence. But, of course, it begs the question, why gravity? Where did that come from? So the third option is that something was caused or created. And that's the answer that Paul proposes. That the universe, that all that is, was brought into time by a creator. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. In other words, before there was matter, there was being. Now consider, something had to exist. Atheists or theists, we all have the same problem. You have to start with something. Do you start with matter or do you start with being? Paul argues it makes a lot more sense to start with being. We're all familiar with the, the Big Bang theory of the universe's beginnings, that it all began about 14 or so billion years ago in a cosmic explosion of pure energy. There's compelling scientific evidence for a Big Bang beginning to the universe. It's widely accepted by both believing and unbelieving scientists. What science can't answer is what caused that Big Bang and where that pure energy came from. But here's the interesting thing. If you read about the Big Bang and read Genesis 1, they're telling the same story. There's no conflict between faith and science on this particular issue, or really on any issue. So which is the more reasonable explanation for why there's something rather than nothing? Is it that something created itself? Or is it that a being beyond space and time, brought matter into existence. A second question has to do with order. Why is there order rather than chaos? You are perhaps familiar with the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle tells us that the universe in which we live is so finely and perfectly tuned to sustain life as we know it. There are about 15 different variables. And if any one of them were to change in just the slightest degree, the speed of light, the force of gravity, the strength of nuclear forces, the slightest change in any one of those 15 variables would bring an end to the universe and life as we know it. So why is that? Why is there order instead of chaos? Well, Paul would say it's the work of an orderly, intentional God. From one man, he made all the nations. They should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places they should live. In other words, a thoughtful being was behind all that we see. 
Well, the atheist or the naturalist would have to argue that it happened all by chance. It's a happy coincidence that all this fine-tuning came together. The problem is that the odds of that happening are infinitesimally small. In fact, the only way to conceive of such a thing happening is to imagine the possibility of billions of universes and solar systems, all of them existing in parallel, and one of them just happening to be the lucky one where all these things come together in just the right system. And that really is the proposal that science is making to us these days. You have heard, perhaps, of the multiverse as opposed to the universe. That there are, in fact, billions of parallel universes and galaxies and solar systems like ours that may or may not sustain life. Ours just happens to be the lucky one. Now... One of the problems is there's really no empirical evidence to support the idea of a multiverse, even though it is widely accepted by scientists today. But the other problem, of course, is the odds still of such a thing happening. And in his book, The Language of God, Francis Collins, the brilliant scientist, shares a, a little kind of analogy of how we might think about this particular problem. He would say, in order for this to be true, you might think of it this way. Imagine a firing squad with 50 expert marksmen and an individual standing before it. The order is given, the shots are fired, and all 50 of the marksmen miss, and the person walks away unscathed. Now, what are the chances of that happening? Well, there's only two scenarios under which something like that might actually happen. The first scenario is that there are millions of executions happening on the very same day, just like this one. And in any one of those, one or two or three or four of the marksmen might happen to miss. It just happens in this lucky one, all 50 of them happen to miss at the very same time. That's one possible explanation. The other possible explanation is that someone has arranged this. Someone took the bullets out of the rifles or paid off the marksmen or somehow arranged the outcome. Which is the more reasonable explanation for why there's order rather than chaos? Pure chance or the work of an intelligent mind behind it? A third question has to do with personality. Why persons and not just matter? I mean, if matter is all there is, why is there life? And why is there human life? And why do human beings have personality that we can think and learn and grow and engage with each other and laugh and love and play? One journalist puts it this way. If evolution accounts for life, where does love come from? Or more to the point, where does baseball come from? Where do we come up with these things? Why personhood? Well, Paul's answer is that life and personhood are the work of a living, personal God. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So what's the more reasonable explanation for personhood? 
is it just the happy interaction of chemical elements and firing neurons? Or is it the expression of a living, personal, creative God? A fourth question has to do with morality. Why is there justice instead of mere expediency? I mean, human beings have this innate sense that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Certain things are just and certain things are unjust. You don't have to teach a seven-year-old to say, that's not fair. <laughs> Every society on earth has laws against stealing. Why is that? Where does this universal moral sense come from? I mean, if we are just physical creatures striving above all else to ensure our own survival and our lineage, why in the world would we ever act in the interest of another person? Why not kill off a competitor for limited resources? Why not take something that will put me and my lineage in a stronger position? Now, atheists, naturalists have worked hard to construct an argument from nature and from evolution for, for altruism, for why it's advantageous for a human species to do good. It's a strained argument, and I won't try to recreate it for you, and it does tend to break down when it comes to personal choices of strength and survival. Paul would propose that it makes more sense to understand that our moral sense is the expression of a good and moral and just God who placed within us those same values. He says, For he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So what's the more reasonable explanation for this sense of morality? That self-surviving creatures actually will sacrifice their own well-being for the sake of another? Or that a good, just being has placed within us a value for justice and goodness and kindness? Well, you get the idea. There are many, many more such questions we could ask. The question of suffering, the question of evil, the question of mortality is their life after death. Every worldview has to wrestle with those questions. And Paul's argument would be, and my argument today would be, that the Christian faith offers the best possible explanation for all these turtles on fence posts with the fewest amount of difficulties. A better story. Let me put it this way. The unbelievable becomes believable when we discover that the Christian faith best accounts for the evidence with the least amount of difficulty. Remember, there are difficulties with every worldview. Doubt is always present for the believer, for the unbeliever. But when you look at all the different worldviews, Christianity not only offers a reasonable explanation, I believe it offers the most reasonable, the most comprehensive explanation for all that is with the fewest amount of difficulties. It's not only a better story, I believe it's a more beautiful story. And if I'd had the wits and the courage, that's what I would have stood up and said to Dr. Pinker that night at the Harvard Faculty Club. Dr. Pinker, you have told a really good story. Humankind has made remarkable moral progress. Good for us and good for God because that's the way he wired it from the beginning. (laughs) 
It's God who gave us this world and everything in it for us to enjoy and explore and expand. It's God who gave us minds to figure things out and to figure better ways to do it. It's God who placed within us this desire that we would be and our world would be better than we are now. It's God who gives us freedom to make choices for the kinds of life we want to live and the kind of world we want to live in. And God even foresaw the mess we would make of things and so he gave us his son Jesus through whom we can be forgiven for our mistakes and get a fresh start to actually become the people and build the world that was supposed to be there in the first place. And the remarkable thing, Dr. Pinker, is that God did all this so that we would seek him and reach out for him and find him because the truth is he's right here all around us. And what he wants most of all is that we would live our lives with him, for him, not only in this life and this world, but in the life to come and in worlds beyond our imagining. Now that's a good story. That's a story worth believing in. It's a story worth getting out of bed for in the morning and going out into the world to put our minds and our hearts and our faith to work and help make this world the, the world that God had in mind when he brought it into being. Don't just take my word for it. There are smarter people around here than me. And as we finish up, I'd like you to hear from one of them. Each week in this series, we're sharing a story from someone here at Grace who's made the journey from unbelief to belief. So listen to Sarah's story, and then I'll come wrap things up. My experience, I think, is somewhat unusual in that it was not a sudden moment of conversion. There was not like a light bulb suddenly went off in my head and I realized, you know, I, I believe this. This is for me. It was more like a jagged process. My name is Sarah Walensky. I was uh, born and raised in Washington, D.C. in the shadow of the National Cathedral. I went to Episcopal private schools. I sort of absorbed knowledge about God as, in sort of a background sense, but I was never too sure of what this actually had to do with me personally. And by the time I was in high school, I kind of settled into a pattern of comfortable being an agnostic. You know, maybe God existed, maybe he didn't. I didn't find the question terribly interesting. So I graduated from Harvard. I went to uh, University of Michigan to study experimental high energy physics. I met Dave, the guy I was gonna marry eventually. Uh, so I wasn't looking for anything else. I didn't have some sort of inner longing that I was aware of. Uh, I was certainly not looking for God in any way. I think that although I may have given up, I do not think God had given up on me. I had, you know, more or less always placed Christianity and Christians in this box, and that box was starting to uh, break down. Some Catholic friends we had that invited us into, our, into their life and had us over to dinner, and I could just see what faith in action looked like in people that I could relate to. You know, before I'd always thought of Christians as these strange, squeaky clean people who never had a fun time, who never thought about anything difficult. Um, who weren't interested in the life of the mind, and these people just completely blew those stereotypes out of the water, them and their friends, and I liked, I liked them as people, I liked what they had, I wanted it too, and I could see, okay, if there's people like this who are Christians, then maybe I could be too. Something happened over the next year, I cannot pinpoint the moment, where I realized I actually could believe that Jesus died for me, that his sacrifice on the cross applied to me, and then even though I might not have great answers to all the questions I'd been struggling with, 
that was okay. I didn't have to stop and basically be stalled there. I could keep moving forward and walk with him and just trust him that somehow this would all eventually make better sense to me. Before I knew Christ, I had a moral sense. I had a worldview that I thought was coherent. You know, it basically is you know, be a good person. Um, I felt I knew what right and wrong were. When I would learn about things about physics, I would feel this, you know, amazement and wonder, like, this is just so cool. Like, I wanted to praise somebody almost, but I didn't know there was anyone there to praise. Now I know who to praise, and that's really satisfying and wonderful. Why should it be that humans can make sense of the universe? Why should we be able to describe the way nature behaves in terms of simple equations that can be printed on a t-shirt. To me, that is a pointer to there being some kind of a rational mind behind it all. It's not proof, I'm not looking for proof, but it's some kind of a suggestion that what we see in nature is compatible with there being a divine being behind it all who thought it up. Oh, did you hear in Sarah's story the two streams we talked about last week of empirical evidence and personal experience? Reason and faith coming together in the person of Christ and leading to a life-changing experience. That's the journey that we are all on, a journey Sarah describes as a jagged process, and that's how it works for many of us. Now, I should say that both Sarah and Karma, who we heard from in last week's video, both scientists, are both active members of GC Science. It is a network of scientists here at Grace Chapel, folks from a variety of scientific disciplines who come together to talk about smart people talking about big ideas. They have a great website. You can find them on our website. There's all kinds of resources there and a monthly gathering as well. Well, we're told that when Paul came to the end of his message, there were three responses. Some people sneered and walked away. Some people believed and followed. And some people said, we'd like to hear more about this. I hope you're in one of those latter two categories, ready to follow or at least to come back and hear more. We invite you to do that next week. We invite you to do that at Alpha. Next week, we'll look about the evidence for Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom, the time and space to ask hard questions, to think deep thoughts. We thank you for the wonder of the world around us and all that it reveals of your nature and your presence and power. We thank you for the work of your spirit in our hearts in mysterious and intangible ways. Thank you for leading so many here to faith in you and to a, a view of the world that's satisfying and invigorating. Pray for each of us, Lord, that we might continue to follow you, follow our doubts. For those still on their way to faith, pray that you would encourage them along the way. And in your time and way, open their eyes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>